The last year and a half has been a wild ride for bond investors, and that's saying something. The phrase wild ride, it's just not supposed to be associated with fixed income investing. Treasury bonds are supposed to be the safest, most stable part of a portfolio. But 2022 saw the worst bond performance ever. And while 2023 has seen a much better overall performance, volatility has remained elevated as bonds have been buffeted by the Fed's aggressive monetary policy, turmoil in the banking sector, and the debt ceiling battle that pushed the country to the precipice of default. But with the Fed's aggressive rate hikes and the debt ceiling battle resolved for now, it begs the question, are bonds back? Welcome to Washington Wise, a podcast for investors from Charles Schwab. I'm your host, Mike Townsend, and on this show, our goal is to cut through the noise and confusion of the nation's capital and help investors figure out what's really worth paying attention to. In just a few minutes, I'll be joined by Colin Martin, Director of Fixed Income Strategy at the Schwab Center for Financial Research, to examine what the environment looks like for bond investors, what the Fed is up to with its recent pause in rate hikes, how Fed policy is impacting bank lending and corporate borrowing, and much more. First, a couple of brief updates on what's making news here in Washington. With the debt ceiling debate in the rearview mirror until 2025, Congress has begun the appropriations process to fund government operations for the coming fiscal year. But already, that process has shown deep divisions between the Republican-controlled House and the Democrat-controlled Senate, divisions that could lead to a government shutdown in the fall. In the debt ceiling deal, President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy agreed to freeze overall government funding at current levels. It's the responsibility of Congress to figure out how to allocate that funding across the 12 appropriations bills that fund every government agency and every federal program. In the Senate, subcommittees last week began considering the first of those 12 bills with allocations at those levels. But in the House, Republicans announced that they plan to fund the government not at current levels, but at 2022 levels, which are about $120 billion lower than this year. This was a concession by Speaker McCarthy to some of the conservative members of his caucus, who were frustrated that the debt ceiling agreement did not result in larger spending cuts. But that will set up a clash with the Senate, as the two chambers are starting at significantly different funding levels. Eventually, the House and the Senate must agree on the exact same bills in order to pass them. Getting agreement on the 12 appropriations bills was always going to be hard. But with significant divergence between the two chambers on the starting point, let alone all the details, now it's going to be even harder. The appropriations bills will be a major priority for Congress in July, and then, after the annual August recess, they will be the primary focus as the fall begins. There are two deadlines to watch here. The government's fiscal year begins on October 1st, so that means that Congress needs to pass those 12 appropriations bills by then, or risk a government shutdown. The alternative, which has happened annually for years now, is that Congress passes a temporary extension of funding to buy itself more time and avoid a shutdown. Given the early discrepancy between the House and the Senate, the odds of a government shutdown have risen considerably. Shutdowns in the past have not been big market movers, but the economic impact can be significant if a shutdown drags out more than a few days. The second deadline is looming at the end of 2023. 
The debt ceiling agreement says that if Congress has not passed those 12 appropriations bills by the end of the year, there will be an automatic, across-the-board, 1% spending cut imposed. Neither party wants to see that scenario happen. It's not clear how all this is going to play out, but it's shaping up to be another showdown between Republicans and Democrats, not dissimilar to the weeks-long debt ceiling standoff that nearly plunged the country into default. I'll be following this closely and its ramifications for the markets and the economy in the weeks ahead. We're going to explore the Fed's latest monetary policy maneuvers in just a minute, but it's worth noting that there was other news about the Fed last week, as the Senate Banking Committee held a confirmation hearing for the president's nominee to fill the open seat at the seven-member Fed Board of Governors. Adriana Kugler, an economist at the World Bank, would be the first Hispanic to ever serve as a Fed governor. She's been nominated to fill the vacancy created when former Fed Vice Chair Leo Brainerd moved to the White House to become the president's top economic advisor. At the same hearing, senators also heard from current Fed Governor Philip Jefferson, who has been nominated to move up to Brainerd's vice chair slot. And current Governor Lisa Cook also testified. Cook joined the Fed last year to fill an unexpired term. But that term expires in January, so the president has nominated her for her own full 14-year term. As is typical for these confirmation hearings, none of the nominees said anything particularly controversial. They echoed their support for the Fed's effort to get inflation down to the 2% target level, and they acknowledged that there's a ways to go to do that. They also took questions about the Fed's role in bank regulation, and all three said they supported tougher capital and liquidity requirements for bigger banks, while ensuring that smaller banks weren't inappropriately burdened with unnecessary regulation. All three are expected to win confirmation later this summer, which would bring the Fed up to its full seven members as the board moves into the fall. Also last week, the Senate Banking Committee approved legislation that would increase penalties for executives at failed banks, including allowing regulators to claw back as much as two years' worth of bonuses from those executives. The bill also includes provisions to increase transparency into the bank oversight process at the Federal Reserve. Those provisions include requirements for detailed reports from the Fed to Congress on any bank failures and new metrics on the effectiveness of the Fed workforce responsible for supervising banks. Toughening bank regulations continues to be a high priority on Capitol Hill in the wake of the collapse of three mid-sized banks earlier this year. Together, the provisions that were approved by the Senate committee last week strike a balance between the two parties' biggest concerns. Democrats are concerned that executive compensation incentives push bank officials to take on too much risk, while Republicans are worried that bank regulators aren't being aggressive enough in pushing struggling banks to make changes. And that's what's notable about this bill. It was co-authored by the committee's chairman, Senator Sherrod Brown, a Democrat from Ohio, and its top Republican, Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina. The bill was approved by the Banking Committee on a bipartisan 21 to 2 vote. That kind of collaboration, it's been pretty rare this Congress. The bill will next be voted on by the full Senate, and then it has to go through the House of Representatives. But the bipartisan collaboration is a sign that this bill has a real chance of becoming law later this year. On my deeper dive, I want to take a closer look at the recent moves the Fed has been making and the impact that's having on borrowers, investors, and the economy. 
To help me sort through it all, I'm pleased to welcome Colin Martin back to the podcast. Colin is the Director of Fixed Income Strategy at the Schwab Center for Financial Research. Thanks for joining me today, Colin. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Well, Colin, let's begin with the Fed. Earlier this month, the Fed announced a pause in interest rate hikes, ending a streak where it had hiked rates for 10 consecutive meetings over the last year. But the Fed also pretty clearly indicated that it will hike rates again later this year. So how do you interpret this pause? I mean, if you aren't done hiking rates, what's the purpose of pausing this month and potentially raising rates again next month? Well, Mike, it really just gives them more time. Uh, the Fed paused to examine the data and take more time to see how the economy is evolving. Something we hear from Fed officials all the time is that monetary policy acts with long and variable legs. So the Fed has seen signs that their policies are working, but they want to see continued progress and kind of pause before they make other decisions. Something that Powell has talked about a lot, and he talked about it in last week's congressional testimony is a driving analogy, where if you're driving somewhere, let's say it's a long distance trip, you might start really fast on an interstate. Then as you get closer to your destination, you might get off the exit and on a local highway, drive a little bit slower. And then as you approach your destination, you're probably going pretty slow to make sure you get there safely and make sure that you don't overshoot your target. And that's similar with how they're kind of tailoring their policy right now. They don't want to overdo it. They want to see how things are going now that they think they're close. But at the crux of it, Mike, inflation is still too high. And that's half of the Fed's mandate. And we all know that inflation is proving to be more sticky uh, than we anticipated. A few things that we look at, and we know Fed officials are looking at specifically, are core inflation readings. That excludes volatile food and energy prices. They're still in the 4 to 5% area. So even though they're down from their recent highs, they're still elevated and, and a long way from the Fed's 2% target. So unless we see them come down very quickly, it seems likely that the Fed will hike again. But they just wanted to pause and, and see how things go before they take another action um, in case they over-tighten and, and maybe slow down growth and inflation too much. Well, having just made a 12-hour drive to Maine for a family reunion, I can certainly appreciate the driving analogy. Colin, another piece of the equation at the Fed is its ongoing effort to unwind its massive balance sheet, which expanded so much as the Fed bought treasuries during the period when interest rates were near zero. How does the effort to reduce the balance sheet work in conjunction with this pause? Well, Mike, a pause is not easing. It doesn't mean the Fed is cutting rate just yet. And even with a pause, whether or not they hike again, we expect them to hold at a tight and high rate for a while. And the balance sheet reduction or quantitative tightening is in line with that. The Fed has been shrinking its balance sheet over the past year or so. We've seen a lot more progress with treasuries than with mortgage-backed securities because mortgage rates have risen so much. We haven't seen a lot of prepayments with mortgages and therefore prepayments for mortgage-backed securities. So the value of their holdings there haven't shrunk too much. But we are seeing a shrinkage with treasuries. Uh, over the past 12 months or so, the amount of treasuries on the Fed's balance sheet is down about $600 billion. So they are making progress there. Now, quantitative tightening is a form of tightening because it takes money out of the economy. And a way I explain it is, is this. If the Fed has, let's say, $60 billion of maturing treasury bills or treasury notes, and now they're not reinvesting those proceeds, 
the Treasury is still issuing the same amount of debt that they have outstanding. So someone else needs to fill that void. Someone else needs to buy that debt. And so let's say it's a bank or individuals. If they're buying or investing with the Treasury or those Treasury bills, that's less money available to spend or invest elsewhere. So as the Fed continues to shrink its balance sheet, that in and of itself is a form of tightening. Colin, there's about to be even more treasuries available to be bought because in the wake of the debt ceiling crisis, where the government was unable to borrow, the Fed now is in the process of issuing a huge amount of treasuries, by some estimates as much as a trillion dollars by the end of this year. At the same time, there were reports earlier this month that the amount of money parked at the Fed's overnight reverse repurchase agreement facility, that's quite a mouthful, dropped below $2 trillion for the first time in more than a year. Is that a good thing? You know, we do think it is a good thing, Mike, but let's go back to what you just mentioned because it is a mouthful. The overnight reverse repurchase agreement facility, and they call it a facility, that's just a term the Fed uses. They call a lot of their lending and borrowing programs facilities. But what this facility is, is a way for eligible institutions to invest with the Fed. It's a tool the Fed uses to implement its monetary policy, and it helps keep rates in its target range. So this facility offers a rate of 5.05%. So now if you're a money market fund and you're looking to invest there, you know what you can get, 5.05%. They're not going to accept a lower rate to invest knowing that they can get that 5.05% from the Fed, nearly risk-free. So that's how it kind of sets the floor to borrowing rates and helps the Fed keep rates in its target range. Now, there's two things that are important here that relate to that flood of Treasury issuance that you alluded to, Mike. The first is that current rate that I just mentioned, 5.05%. And the second is that money market funds tend to be pretty large users of this facility. Well, right now, Treasury bill yields are higher than that facility rate of 5.05%. You can get Treasury bill yields in the 5.1 to 5.4% range. So it's more attractive to consider Treasury bills versus that repo facility. And because money market funds are big participants in that, and as you mentioned, that's roughly two trillions in there, that's you know $2 trillion that can be used to if they're removed from this facility to actually purchase some of those new issue treasuries. And that's important because we do expect the Fed to really ramp up that treasury bill issuance. But it sounds like there's enough money in this facility that that money market funds are one eligible institution, but that they could pull from there and then invest in treasury. So while it is a lot of money and you know trillion dollars sounds like a lot over the next few months, we do think it can be absorbed by market participants. Well, Colin, we've just talked about one tongue twister. Let's talk about another because it seems like the financial world is nothing but a bunch of acronyms. One that has been attracting some attention recently is the SLUCE, which stands for Senior Loan Officer Opinion Survey. What is it and what is it telling us? This is a survey from the Federal Reserve. It's a survey of up to 80 banks and it's conducted quarterly. It covers a number of topics as it relates to bank lending, like standards, the terms of borrowing, and borrower demand. 
And the most recent release was for the first quarter of this year and was released in April. But the survey was generally after uh, the recent bank failures. So a lot of that kind of already happened before banks submitted their responses. Now, it covers a lot of lending, including household lending and real estate. But we tend to focus on lending uh, by banks in terms of commercial and industrial loans. At a high level, we see three factors that, that suggest bank lending should slow uh, going forward. One, we're seeing tighter standards from banks, meaning they're being more strict with who they lend to. So if you're a weak borrower, a bank might not even risk lending to you. Uh, we're also seeing higher spreads. That's the rate charge. This is important because that's a spread that's already on top of a, of a high rate right now. Because when, when banks lend, they, they use a reference rate like let's say the Fed funds rate, for example, which is up sharply. And now the spread on top of that's up even more. Um, so that just makes it very, very expensive for, for borrowers to borrow. And then finally, we're seeing reduced demand. The demand for commercial and industrial loans was at its lowest level since 2009, uh, likely due to the combination of, of high rates and, and high spreads. So if the commercial and industrial loan market is, is slowing, how does that impact me as a borrower myself, whether I'm looking for a home mortgage or a car loan, something like that? And maybe more broadly, what does it mean for the economy? Mike, it matters for a lot of parts of the economy. It affects us as consumers, as borrowers. It, it makes mortgage rates go higher, auto loans, home equity loans, you name it. Uh, but also for businesses, the cost of, of borrowing has risen pretty much across the board. And less lending or borrowing can mean lower economic growth down the road because borrowing allows us, again, individuals or corporations, uh, to spend now and then repay it later. But if we're not borrowing now, it might mean less spending uh, pretty much across the board, which can slow economic growth. But this is really what the Fed wants. It wants to see spending slow to bring down inflation. One way that, that you can define inflation, there's a number of ways to, to, to define it. But one definition is it's too much money chasing too few goods. So if the cost of money is going up and it's more expensive uh, for individuals or businesses to borrow, that can result in less spending and then that can bring inflation down. Now, there can be negative spillover effects from all this. You know, tight lending standards mean that some borrowers might not be able to borrow at all. And that can be a problem, you know, for both households and corporations. But if you're a business and you rely on borrowing to fund your operations and suddenly, you know, banks aren't willing to lend or the, the, the borrowing rate is too prohibitive, that can be a problem for you. So you might need to uh, shut down, buy less from your suppliers, lay off people. So there's any number of spillover effects. But at the end of the day, you know, less bank lending, tighter standards, higher rates can all play a role in, in slowing the growth of our economy. Colin, I think this is a really important point you're making. because so I think it's a little bit counterintuitive for the average watcher of the Fed that this is the goal. This is the goal of the Fed is trying to lower spending to bring inflation down. So um, really helpful to, to clarify that. Uh, big banks, big corporations, they, despite this atmosphere, they're still finding ways to borrow uh, despite the policies. They're issuing bonds. So are there any concerns about them taking that path? You know, Mike, right now there aren't too many concerns. It's funny, based on our discussion so far, it's kind of had a negative tilt, right? Less lending, less borrowing, what's the impact on the economy? 
But what we've seen is that corporate bond issuance has generally held up and, and banks have been able uh, to get access uh, to liquidity and, and, and things like that. Now, now, if we look first at banks, the Federal Reserve has a lot of facilities, and I used that term before, but facilities that allow banks to borrow. They introduced the bank term funding program after this year's bank failures that can help improve the liquidity of banks. And, and we've also seen borrowing from federal home loan banks. Now, for non-financial corporations, we've seen issuance be relatively strong lately, which shows that even though we're seeing bank lending standards uh, tighten a little bit and higher borrowing costs, individual investors or institutional investors still appear willing to lend to these corporations. So even though rates have risen, one thing we look at is that spread, that extra yield. And for high quality investments, that spread has only risen you know, relatively modestly so far. And when I talk about high quality, I'm talking specifically for investment grade rated corporations. Their borrowing costs right now are in the five to 6% area. That, that's up uh, a lot from where they were just a year or so ago. But over the past 20 years, it's at the high end of the range, but not, not super, super high. And if we tie it back to what this means for investors, we think those yields are pretty attractive. So there's, there's kind of two sides of this higher rate coin. While it does make it difficult and more expensive if you're um, issuing debt or you're trying to borrow, for us as investors, it means higher yields are out there. And that's an area that we like right now. We like investment grade rated corporate bonds because we think they have strong balance sheets. We think they can withstand potentially slower economic growth. And we'd favor them right now versus you know, lower rated companies like high yield bonds. Well, you mentioned high yield borrowers and in, in particular corporate borrowers that there are some risks too. So aren't they going to have to refinance their maturing bands at, at very high rates? And, and isn't that a potential concern? That's right, Mike. And it is a risk. And it's something that we're focusing on right now. Just to a point I made before, we want to differentiate between bank lending. Banks do a lot of lending. But a lot of corporations also issue debt to investors, whether it's institutions, insurance companies, mutual funds, things like that. And, and we have seen most investors still generally be willing to lend to these riskier companies, albeit at higher rates. So in addition to the higher reference rates or treasury yields that we're seeing, those spreads have risen. And that's a problem for the low-rated companies out there. If we look specifically at, at high-yield bonds, for example, it's something I focus on a lot. Those are low-rated companies, and, and the average yield for a high-yield issuer is in the 8 to 9% area right now. If we go back to late 2020 and most of 2021, that average rate or borrowing cost for someone looking to issue a bond was only around 4%. So we've seen borrowing costs more than double over the past two years or so. Now, that doesn't mean that all companies are suddenly seeing their borrowing costs double, because that only matters if you're looking to issue debt right now or refinance debt. But for those companies who are looking to refinance debt, we think that's a pretty big risk right there. Can these companies afford to pay those high rates? How much out of their profits are those high interest expenses? Um, how much is that gonna take out of there? So, so I think that's a risk. And it's something that we're paying attention to. And if we start to see defaults pick up, that can have you know, wide-ranging impacts on the overall economy. Why do these companies offer such high yields in the first place? 
Well, they offer high yields because they're riskier companies. And, and just to kind of talk about this asset class, I glossed over it before, but when I talk about high yield bonds, I'm talking about a type of corporate bond that has sub-investment grade ratings. They go by multiple names. High yield bonds are the most common term. They're also called sub-investment grade bonds because they have sub-investment grade credit ratings, or they're called junk bonds. That's kind of a jargony term that we use. But junk bonds, high yield bonds, sub-investment grade rated bonds, they're all the same thing. They're not characterized by the yields they offer, even though they're called high yield, but they're characterized by their credit rating. So when we look at the credit rating spectrum, you start at the high end with AAA, and as you go down that rating spectrum, you get to a credit rating of double B. Once you get to double B or below, that's considered high yield. Now, these issuers tend to have a lot of debt, a lot of leverage or, or debt relative to their earnings. They tend to have more volatile cash flows, and that's why they have those low credit ratings, and that's why they have to issue bonds with such high interest rates, because lenders or investors really demand higher yields for the risk that company could default. And that is a risk right now. We're starting to see defaults with high yield bonds pick up. Defaults don't tend to be much of an issue for investment grade bonds. Investment grade default rates tend to be pretty low. But with the high yield bond market, we are seeing defaults pick up. Uh, in the 12 months ending May, according to Moody's, the default rate was over 3%. Uh, it's more than double where it was just, just 12 months ago. And, and Moody's expects that to continue to rise. So, so that's a risk, and that's a risk for investors, because if a defaults occur, it means the value of your bond holdings can go down because companies aren't repaying their debts. But investors might see these bonds with these high yields and maybe a short maturity and think they look pretty attractive. So what could go wrong? Well, I'll go back to the point before about defaults. I mean, these low-rated, riskier companies could default. And what we always want to caution any investor is that if it looks too good to be true, it might be. Now, I think one trap an investor might fall into, especially with junk or high-yield bond investing, is that maturity date. Because it can almost come off like a light at the end of the tunnel. You might be looking for a bond to buy, and maybe it has two years to maturity and a very high yield. You might just think, oh, if it can just get to that maturity date, I'll get that money back and I'll get that attractive yield. But it has that high yield for a reason. It likely has a high likelihood of default, um, high likelihood of more price declines. So that's something to, to be cognizant of whenever you're considering individual bonds, but especially high yield bonds. So our guidance always is, is don't just look for the highest yielding bond out there, uh, because that means there's likely a lot of risk that's coming with that. So Colin, you've told us about how the Fed is tightening, bank lending standards are tightening. It's just a harder environment generally for borrowers of all types. We know 2022 was bad for bonds. We know painfully it was a bad year for bonds. But 2023 so far has been much better. So let's get to it. Are bonds back? And if so, where should we be looking? Where are the opportunities? We do think bonds are back. That's been our theme for most of this year. We think they're back mainly because of the yields they offer. These are the highest yields we've seen in years. And, and we've been suggesting that investors focus on high quality investments. You know, with, They tend to be much safer. Things like treasuries or certificates of deposit, investment grade corporates or municipal bonds. You can get yields of three, four, five percent or more, depending on which type of bond we're talking about there. But those are again, those are relatively safe 
investments. I think that's important. Following the discussion we just had, Mike, we've talked about the risks of slower bank lending and tighter credit standards and the aggressive pace of rate hikes, what that impact on the economy might be. And if the economy slows as we expect, we'd rather focus on higher rated issuers who can withstand that versus taking too many risks like in the junk bond market or the high yield bond market in case we do see defaults pick up as they have. Now, there could be an added benefit for high quality investments should the economy slow. And if the Fed does end up cutting rates sometime in the near future, that's because of the relationship that bond prices and yields have. It's a common relationship where bond prices and yields move in opposite directions. Now, that's a really bad thing when yields are rising. And we saw that last year. In 2022, most bond indexes suffered their worst returns in decades. But now if we flip that, and let's say the economy does begin to slow or at least stall, and the Fed ends up cutting rates at some point, if yields begin to fall, that can help pull their prices higher. So not only are you getting higher yields today, you can potentially experience price appreciation if we start to see slower economic growth and maybe uh, some price declines in some of the riskier parts of the market. And that's how bonds can help offer some ballast for your portfolio. If riskier investments are going down, your high quality bond investments might go up. Now, if you hold individual bonds and you're holding to maturity, that might not matter to you. You might just continue to hold that bond to maturity, or you can choose to sell if you want. But even if you're just holding through the potential price fluctuations, those potential price increases, they can certainly help if we do see riskier investment prices fall over the next number of quarters. Well, Colin, a great conversation as always. Thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for having me, Mike. That's Colin Martin, Director of Fixed Income Strategy at the Schwab Center for Financial Research. You can read his latest commentary at schwab.com learn. That's all for this week's episode of Washington Wise. We'll be back with a new episode in two weeks. Take a moment now to follow the show in your listening app so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you've heard, leave us a rating or a review. Those really help new listeners discover the show. For important disclosures, see the show notes or schwab.com slash Washington Wise, where you can also find a transcript. I'm Mike Townsend, and this has been Washington Wise, a podcast for investors. Wherever you are, stay safe, stay healthy, and keep investing wisely.